Well, this morning you guys can open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And as you're doing so, I just want to kind of observe one of the challenges that we as believers face is getting ideas and truths down from our minds into our hearts. Like, for instance, it's one thing to know about the doctrine of grace. It's another thing to really let grace sink into our hearts and shape our lives. It's one thing to know what the Bible says about heaven, but it's another thing to live in light of that, to really let it shape who we are and to move from just theology down into our hearts. And here in Psalm 139, David is wrestling with this same difficulty. If you're familiar with the psalm, he's, he's considering and thinking and pondering on some truly lofty ideas about God, and he's wanting them to sink in and shape his life. And he's looking at three main ideas, the fact that God knows him, the fact that God is present with him, and the fact that God has a purpose for him. And in his own words, as he thinks on these things, David says, these are too wonderful for me. These are ideas that are so high, he can't fully attain them. But I'm here today in teaching because I have. I mean, that's actually why Lucas asked me to teach this morning, because I fully grasp the concept of God's infinite knowledge, his infinite presence and his eternal purposes in his life. I'm, I'm writing a book. I'll be available for photos after service. I'm kidding, of course. You guys, I'm thankful someone's laughing. Rather than, is this guy taking himself seriously? I'm kidding. In reality, I struggle with these just as much as the next person owning an idea, but letting it really sink into my heart. I'm on board with the ideas of God being omniscient and omnipresent and all the things of infinite God, but like everyone else, to really let it sink into my thinking and my living, it's another thing altogether. And so my goal this morning as we consider Psalm 139 is to fill our minds again with these incredible truths and give God space to let them kind of seep into who we are, to let them shape how we live and how we think, whether it's conscious thoughts or just the subconscious thoughts that kind of shape our day-to-day. And so why don't we read through this psalm together, and then we'll take a bit of time to just pray and again ask God to be our teacher this morning. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely, the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts and covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book all, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the perfect hatred and count them my enemies. And search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you that you are not a God who's so small that our little minds can fully understand you. We can kind of probe to the edges of who you are and put you in a little box that we've got an all tidy version of who God is and we just put you neatly on a shelf in the mental cabinets of our minds. Lord, thank you that there's always space to grow towards you, that you're bigger and greater than we possibly can imagine. Your care for us and your work in our lives is bigger and better than we can imagine. And so today, help these ideas shape our minds, but then would they do that work of sinking into our hearts that we just live these things and we own these truths, not just in a mental capacity, but down into our hearts, Lord. And so be our teacher and our instructor by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a wonderful psalm. It's a familiar psalm to many of us. Hopefully it's a psalm that is an old familiar friend to you. And right away as we get into this familiar friendly psalm, David opens with this note of wonder. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. This idea that God, the infinite God over all creation, who is as large as David describes in the rest of the book, has seen and searched out David personally. You, God, the high and lofty one, have searched out and known me. This is an incredible thing. God's knowledge isn't just of everything in totality. It's also personal. God knows us. He knows you specifically and individually. Yes, God knows the total of his creation, but he knows you particularly. I know I often can feel like a face in the crowd, just, you know, kind of lost in the shuffle. And yet the Bible is so clear that that's not the case with God. He doesn't lose any of us in the shuffle. He knows us perfectly. And he searches us out. He doesn't just know us from the surface, but he searches us out. He knows us individually. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, grabs hold of this idea saying, there is no creature hidden from his sight. You're not hidden from him. You're not obscured by something going on in your world or the people around you, a a, a kind of a, a louder, more famous family member or someone more known at work or whatnot. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Thankfully and truthfully, fearfully, there is nothing hidden from his sight. The God of all creation, infinite God, sees us. He sees you this morning. There's nothing about us or about our lives that's hidden from his sight. Lord, you have searched me and known me. And just the contrast between the two individuals there in verse 1. You, the infinite God, have searched out me, the small, finite individual. And David goes on to kind of expand on that and explore that. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. By saying that God sees our sitting down and our rising up, David is saying that God knows everything about us. Bible teacher named Dr. Constable gives some insight into this. He says, the psalmist employed a figure of speech, a merism, to express completeness. In merisms, the opposites named represent everything in between them. And so God knew every move David made. Furthermore, he understood his motives as well as his actions. And so when David is saying, you understand my sitting down and my rising up, he's using this figure of speech to say, whether I'm sitting or I'm standing, whether I'm still or in movement, God, you see it all and you know it all. Not just these two individual things, but everything in between. You see it all and you know it all. When I sit down to rest and when I stand up to work, when I'm sitting down to pause or when I'm standing up to be about things, you see it and you know it and you understand my thoughts from afar off. And this is such an encouragement to me. What peace there is to know that God understands our thoughts. 
How many times have your thoughts been so jumbled that you personally don't understand them? I've been there so many times. I just, I can't make sense of my own thinking. How many times have we been so much in such turmoil about something and we can't quite put our finger on why? Maybe we're angry or stressed, fearful or depressed, and we just can't quite explain it. I don't know why I'm so unsettled. I don't understand kind of where my thoughts have been going and what they're progressing towards. God understands our thought life. I'm so thankful that we have a God who sees us and searches us and knows us and says, I can help you make sense of those thoughts. I can help arrange your thinking so that it comes to right conclusions. I can help shape those things. You have a God who sees your thoughts and understands them even when you don't understand yourself. I'm amazed by how much we are a mystery even to ourselves, right? And yet God knows us. He knows us thoroughly. He knows us completely. And our lives are a dynamic, ever-shifting mix of things. But God knows everything about us. There's nothing left unknown to him. You are acquainted, rather, you understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Again, this is so encouraging. God understands our path. Isn't there a lot of peace? And I hope you find a lot of peace in knowing that someone knows the path that you're on. You and I obviously can't see into the future. And we often have times and questions about our past. What was that all about? I still don't understand that season that I went through. And so whether it's our past or our future, things are unclear to us, and yet there's someone who sees it perfectly. God understands the path that you're on. And for me, this is such a comfort to know there's someone who knows That the one who's got his hands on the wheel of life, who's in control and making the big decisions, he actually knows where he's going and how to get there. He understands the path that we're taking. I'm grateful for this. Spurgeon, as he looks at this idea, says our paths may be habitual. They might be accidental. They might be an open or secret. But with them all, the most holy one is well acquainted. And this should fill us with awe, he says, so that we sin not. Absolutely. It should fill us with courage so that we fear not and with delight so that we mourn not. You know, we've been talking this morning about how sometimes we can be a part of a group and yet still unknown. That there's a desire to take fellowship beyond what a Sunday morning service can offer. And whether that's men's and women's sprouts, any of the different settings we've been talking about this morning, the desire is to be known and to have people help us walk the path we're on. David is reminding us, we have someone in the Lord who sees those things and knows those things. There's someone who comprehends our path. But the reality that God knows our path It doesn't actually do us any good unless we stick close to him, right? This is a great idea that we have a shepherd who will lead us, whether it's through valleys of the shadow of death or whether it's to green pastures and still waters, but it doesn't have us any good to have a, a shepherd who knows our path and knows which direction to take us if we as sheep won't stick close to that shepherd. And so this truth might be an encouraging truth, but there's also something for us to do in response to it to say, Lord, I need to stick close to you then. You're the one who understands it all. You're the one who's got it figured out. I will stick close to you. How many times Kelly and I have to tell our kids, you let us do the parent job, right? Our oldest is 11, and so that just tells you kind of the competency, uh, you know, level that we're dealing with at our home and taking care of life and the business that makes up life. And our kids are always trying to grab the reins and take over for their younger siblings or just some question that's going on. And Kelly and I are always telling them, we'll do the parent job. You do the kid job. And you and I have that same opportunity to let God do the parent job in our lives, to let him be the one who knows our path And so we'll stick close to him. Our kids get into trouble. We get into trouble when we start diverging and moving away from the one who knows what's best. So the reality that God knows our paths and is acquainted with all our ways, it's an incredibly encouraging truth 
but only to the degree that we're sticking close to him. Jesus calls us to abide in him. And I pray that this is a reminder saying, Lord, I want to abide in you. I want to be at rest in you. So David says again, you're acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows the words on our tongues. The thoughts that we have that we're going to vocalize or not, he saw those way before they ever happened. God sees the words on our tongues. And one of the ways that this has shaped my walk with the Lord is the freedom to be honest and transparent with God. And I tell you, this is something that has so, been such an encouragement to me that when I see something like this, I say, I hope there's someone else who can gain the value that I've given or gained from this to just simply be open and honest with God. You know, sometimes we feel like we need to have it all put together when we talk to God. We need to put on our, our Sunday go to meet and close, so to speak, when we talk to God, that we need to have our lives in a certain amount of order before we can really do any effective conversation with God. But David is reminding us he knows our thoughts and our words before we even speak them. And I think what's happening here is we kind of are, are extrapolating from our relationships with one another and building that towards God. Because sometimes you and I try to protect each other by filtering what's in our heads before they come out of our mouths. And maybe it's a desire to protect the person that we're talking with. I don't really want them to know how angry I am right now. Uh, maybe it's the desire to protect our self-image. I, I don't want to appear weak, so I'm just kind of filtering the thoughts that are in my head and making sure they don't all make it out into my speech. There's any number of reasons that we filter our thinking before it reaches our tongues. But with the God who searches us out, there isn't an emotion he doesn't see. There's not a thought he doesn't know. And so there's no protecting him. There's no need to pretend that we're something other than what we are with him. He sees us. He searches us. And he knows us. And so this means we can just be honest with him. There's someone out there who sees you as you truly are with none of the show that we like to put on, and he still loves us. We'll get into that later through the psalm. The God who sees you perfectly still loves you and wants fellowship with you, and that means that we don't have to guard our tongue with him. Now, obviously, I'm not saying be disrespectful and be, you know, crude or rude with the Lord, but I'm saying we don't have to filter with him. We can just be honest when we're angry. We can say, God, what that person said really made me angry. And we, there's a health in acknowledging to him and to ourselves what's going on. And when I'm worried and anxious, I can just tell him, Lord, I don't know what this next doctor visit's going to turn up. I'm really worried about it. Lord, I don't see how we as a family pay the bill this month, but I'm really worried about it. Lord, I don't know how to steer my kids towards you, and I'm scared by the choices they're making. Lord, I'm just sharing these things with you. We don't have to protect God from what's going on in our hearts, thinking, well, I don't really want to burden God with my fears and my worries about, you know, X, Y, and Z. You're not protecting him. He already sees it. He already knows it. He already has it in his heart. And so just be open and honest and transparent with him. The lyrics of the friend uh, of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, always seem appropriate in this context. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God sees your minds. He sees the troubled thoughts. He sees the peaceful thoughts. He sees the thoughts of rejoicing. You don't do him any good by holding those things back. All it does is prevent and put a barrier between true fellowship between you and the Lord. There's not a word on our tongue that God doesn't know it altogether. And so just be open and honest with the one who knows you so well, a friend who will never forsake you. 
Behold, you know it all together. Verse 5, Lord, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Man, two more amazing truths that David is just continuing to lay down in wonder in this psalm. You and I may not be able to see it with our eyes, but the truth of the matter is that God has put a hedge of protection around each one of us. He's hedged us in before and behind. Nothing gets into our lives that hasn't been first filtered through his hands. And you could look at Job chapter 1 to see this reality in place. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, Satan is saying, look, Lord, I, I really wanted a chance to go after Job and really tear this guy down. But he says in Job chapter 1, verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? God had hedged Job in, and there was no way for Satan to pass through that hedge without God's permission. Well, of course, you know the story, and God chooses to part that a bit and allow Satan to trouble Job, but Satan had no permission to do so apart from God's sovereignty. He couldn't just say, I'm just gonna, I found a sneaky way in, God wasn't looking, I, I kind of jumped over the top of that hedge. There was no way for Satan to go into Job's life without God parting that hedge. And you and I have the same thing. Now, we might be thinking, I wish the hedge was a little tighter. There's a lot getting through this thing. I mean, let's, let's shore up this thing a little bit here. And I'm not one to say here, I know better than God about what should be in your life or not. But I do know the Bible teaches that there is a hedge before and behind you. And not only is there this hedge of protection that God manages in his wisdom, but we see there that his hand is upon us, verse 5. That God's hand is on us. The Bible talks a lot about the hands of God. One of my favorite phrases from the books of Nehemiah and Ezra are how both of these individuals speak of God's good hand being upon them. I was just talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about how we're seeing answers to certain prayers, and it feels like as they were walking forward in life, rather than coming up against a closed door and banging off of it, there was an open door that was there, and the next step they took, there was another open door, and it was just this sense that I would describe that season as God's good hand being on what they're walking forward in. And God's hand is on our lives. He hasn't let go of the wheel and just kind of willy-nilly let life take its course. God's hand is on you. Not just on those super spiritual saints that we say, of course his hand is on Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, or you know the other famous people in our minds, but his hand is on you. There's no saint who's so unknown, no person who's so in the background that God's hand isn't on them specifically. Young, old, new saint, seasoned saint, God's hand is on your life, just like it was on David's. And of course, in light of all these things, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. The depth of these realities, the height of them is so much that David can't fully wrap his mind around them. Here he is, the one writing about them by the direction of the Spirit, and yet even he can't grasp their full measure. I'm reminded of what Paul would pray for the Ephesians. In chapter 3, he prays for them that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you, a finite being, might be filled with all the fullness of infinite God. What a prayer, right? What an idea that the finite could grasp the infinite. And yet this is the prayer, this is the call, this is the invitation that's there for us to grab hold of knowledge and truth that's too good for us to fully take in. You guys ever gone to an IMAX movie and had to sit close up front? This is the mental picture in my mind when I'm thinking of truths that are too much to take in at any one point. The screen just kind of wraps around you and you realize, I can't watch everything all at once. What's going on? It's just too much. The sound, all it's just too much. It's bigger than I can fully take in. And that's what David is saying here. It's just too much, Lord. Your truth about you is too good. 
both Paul and David, whether here or in Ephesians, were talking about things they couldn't fully comprehend, not just that they were ideas that were cold clinical truths, but truths that were too good to believe or to, to take in, rather. Again, another hymn comes to mind. This is a hymn that we used to sing growing up. I love it so much. It, this, the lyric goes, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky just bigger and better than we can possibly grasp. Even if all of us were a trade and every single stalk of grass out there was a, a quill for us to write with and the whole ocean was ink to draw from, we still couldn't fully write out the goodness of God towards us. Such high truth, such wonderful truth, I can't fully comprehend it. God's knowledge of David in verses 1 through 6. As he continues to talk about these high and lofty ideas, in verse 7 he begins to shift to a new idea that God is present with him. Not just that God knows him, but that he's present with him. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Again, such wonderful truth. I'm so grateful that there is no place that you and I can go where God's Spirit is not already there. Not that He beat us to it as He's faster to get there, but He's all present all the time. He's already there. For some of us who have family members who are not really walking with the Lord, this is an encouraging thing. That no matter where their life takes them, the Holy Spirit is there working to point them back to Jesus. Or maybe not back to, but towards Jesus for the first time. And we're not present with them. We're not in the situations that they occupy. And yet God's Spirit is there wanting to point them to Jesus. Maybe you're a family member and we're sending a kid off to college or sending a loved one off to a new adventure. And now there's distance between us and them. And we recognize it doesn't matter where we're at on the map. God's Spirit is there. David says in verse 8, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. This has always been one of those things I just kind of that record scratch plays in my mind when I read verse 8. Wait a minute. I understand that God's present in heaven, but if I make my bed in hell, you're there. That's a hard idea to wrap our minds around, but what David is using here in the Hebrew is not the word specifically that we think of eternally as the place of judgment, but more generically as the place of the dead. It's the Hebrew word sheol, generically, again, the place of, of the dead, just and unjust. Sometimes this word is just translated in the Old Testament as the grave. But even if it's not talking about the place of the dead generically and about the place of judgment specifically, God's presence is there revealed through his holy judgment. David Guzik writes on this idea, he says, though David does not use the specific word for hell, the sense would be the same. Even in hell, God will be present because there is no place where God cannot be. Yet God's presence in hell will radiate none of his love and grace and only his righteous judgment. God pulling back parts of himself and yet revealing others so David is saying, whether I'm living or I'm dying, whether I'm in judgment or whether I'm in paradise, God, you are there with me. Really, this verse, verse 8 has two sets of contrast because heaven and hell can help us picture the idea of, of life and death in contrast with one another, but they also carry the idea of above and below, just like they do today. If I was to say, hey, you know, not just uh, theori theologically, but generally speaking, where do we all picture hell as being? You know, the cartoons always have it down below, right? And heaven is always up. And so these ideas are the same in the Old Testament days, above and below. And so whether he's saying whether it's life or death at the opposite ends of the spectrum, whether it's the lowest place that we can sink or the highest place that we can rise to, God, you are there. There's nothing in between where your presence is not above or below, life or death, eternity past in any way, Lord, you are there. God is present with us. 
Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We know wings of the morning is figurative language if you've ever woken up in the morning. I wake up in the morning and it's not like wings. John and I were just talking about this morning. I wake up in the morning and it's like a bowl of Rice Krispies. Everything's snapping and cracking and popping and like this... This is not good, not young like I used to be. And so I don't wake up and think, wings of the morning, let's go. (laughs) Maybe David's talking about that. Maybe he's more of a morning person than I am. But I think this is figurative language. Somebody even say that David is talking about the way that light travels, the speed at which light travels. Morning breaks and light comes at us from the sun at an incredible 186, 282 miles an hour. Excuse me, 186,282 miles a second. 186,000 miles a second. It's 93 million miles to our sun. It would take you 8 minutes and 20 seconds to travel here at the speed of light. 93 million miles. And David is figuratively, poetically saying if we were to move at speeds that sound like science fiction, we wouldn't leave God behind. If we could take the wings of the morning and travel at the speed of light, wherever we land, we would find God was already there. And again, like I said earlier, it wasn't that he's just faster than us, that he's somehow got a, a faster spaceship than we do. He's all present. He didn't have to move in anticipation of us. He's already there. He's all places all the time. There's no place that you and I can go, even if we were to somehow travel at the speed of light, the wings of the morning. And then David uses the figurative language of the uttermost parts of the sea, those areas past the edge of the map, areas where we've never been before, new territory for us, places that feel unknown and uncharted, And even when we're in those seasons of life, God is with us. But I take so much comfort in these ideas to apply them and again to kind of move them from poetic language down into our day-to-day lives. How many times have you been in life where it seems like it's moving much too fast for you? Things are moving at a speed and a pace. It's just, oh man, I can hardly keep up with my day-to-day. God is present there. How many times have you been in uncharted waters before? I've never been in a situation like this. I don't know what to make. The reference points that I usually use to guide me in life, they are completely off the map right now. I'm in uncharted waters, the uttermost parts of the sea. God is there with us, even in those situations. God is present. There's no season that's moving too fast No season of isolation or unknown that you're in uncharted waters. God is present, not just physically, yes, physically, not just emotionally, yes, emotionally. Every single way possible, God is present with you in the moment. Wings of the morning are uttermost parts of the sea. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Again, I love this. Even when life seems to be running away from us, God is there to lead us and hold us. So thankful for that. When life seems too big, too scary, too unknown, too odd for us, God is there to lead and to hold you. There's someone who looks at these circumstances and says, those aren't too big for me. They're not too confusing for me. They haven't overwhelmed me. They didn't catch me off guard I can lead you, and I can hold you together. Again, what comfort this is when you and I feel completely overwhelmed in over our heads. We don't know what to do. We can simply trust that God will lead us, even if it's one step at a time. And so again, like we said earlier, our call is to stick close to him. To not start making decisions and trying to create solutions in our own, but to lean into him and to let us, let him lead us. I think of how Abraham and Sarah had a promise from God, I will give you a child. And when it seemed like God's not answering that promise, where is that child? Oh, here's a way we can make that come to pass. And they create this problem of Ishmael. 
You and I do that all the time when, when instead of letting God hold us together and lead us, we say, I'm in uncharted water, so I've just got to make a solution. Instead of leaning on him and waiting on him, we take matters into our own hands. When you get into these seasons, remember verse 10 that even there, God is willing to lead you and able to lead you, desiring to lead you. And that his right hand is there to hold you. The season hasn't come and removed you from God. His hand is there to hold you. Verse 11, David continues, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. This verse is both a warning and a comfort, isn't it? Because it's a warning in that there's a part of us that thinks that we can hide our sin from God. What did, I mean, this goes all the way back to the garden. What did Adam and Eve do after sinning? They put on these fancy fig clothes and they hide out, as if God doesn't like see that. I, I love when our Evie, our little uh, three-year-old, is playing hide and seek, and, and her version of hide and seek is to basically like cover her eyes, and then say, "Here I am." Uh, that's what it's like trying to hide from God. It doesn't work very well. And yet we fool ourselves into thinking that we can disguise our sin from God. We think that if we've hidden it from others, we've also hidden it from God. And in those moments, we love darkness. Perhaps not literal darkness, but the darkness that comes as a metaphor for that which hides and obscures. Figuratively speaking, we shrink back into darkness, thinking that we can obscure and cover our sin. We read about this in John chapter 3. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. David knew this perfectly, didn't he? In his sin with Bathsheba, he thought he had covered his tracks perfectly. No one knows what's going on. Darkness figuratively covered his actions. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth because God saw, God knew, none of it was uh, covered in darkness. The darkness that David had woven around himself had just as, uh, was just as good as daylight to God. He saw through David's deceptions. He knew his motives. He knew his actions. Nothing could hide from his eyes. And this should be a warning to us, doesn't it? If you don't read this and not, and not get a warning from it, you're not paying attention. This should warn us. The knowledge that God sees us should move us away from sin. What an incredible motivator to walk in holiness that God sees us. It should cause us to rethink the plans that we have. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. Psalm 19 says the fear of the Lord is clean and it's enduring forever. As the fear of God settles into our hearts, the knowledge that he sees us, it leads us towards cleanliness. The Proverbs talk about the fear of the Lord leading us to hate evil and that it prolongs our days. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning us away from the snares of death. The knowledge that God sees us, that there's no darkness to him, nothing that obscures us to him, should lead us away from sin. It used to be a compliment to call an individual a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. But we could use a whole lot more of that in our lives today, couldn't we? What would our, our individual lives look like? What would our families look like, our communities, our workplaces look like if the fear of God truly settled into our thinking, if we understood that the darkness and the light are both the same to him and that neither obscures us from his sight? You and I should be warned by a passage like this, not in a bad way, in a healthy way. But on the other hand, these verses are also an incredible comfort I hope we don't just see the warning, the idea of fearing God in these verses. I hope they also see the incredible comfort that here is here. When dark seasons come into our lives, it's easy to feel alone, unseen, and unwitnessed, isn't it? Because we're experiencing a grief. 
or experiencing maybe a certain health struggle, a family struggle, and these things are so personal to us, it's hard to believe that anyone else can really see or understand us. We feel lost that our grief has pushed us into a corner or that no one really knows what it's like to go through the health thing that we're going through or our family thing. Yes, people know our family, but they don't know what we're going through. And we feel like there's a certain darkness that has settled over, obscuring us from being seen. And yet here we have the promise and the reminder that there is no darkness that can hide us from the Lord. You are not unseen this morning. Our sin is not hidden, and neither are the difficulties that we experience in life. The things that bring us grief, the things that make us feel alone and unwitnessed, maybe covered under some dark cloud, you are not unseen this morning. The darkness and the light are both alike to our Savior. Well, in verse 13, as he moves from God's knowledge of us and his presence with us, David is reminded that these things don't come into existence just because we become aware of them. That these things actually were always in existence, and it's only in time that we become to be aware of them. In the next section of this psalm, David reminds us that God's care for us has reached from eternity past through the present and will extend into eternity future. That he cares so much for us that he created us on purpose for a purpose. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts and you covered me in my mother's womb. When we talk about knowledge that's too wonderful, so wonderful that it's hard to grasp, this definitely falls into that camp, doesn't it? The idea, the reality that God himself, not some agent of his, not some like process that he handed off, but God himself personally and individually knit us together in our mother's womb should be completely jaw-dropping. God created you. You weren't formed through the mindless division of cells. You're not just the output of a biological process that's just simply following the set of directions that are your impersonal DNA. God created you specifically and individually. God created those processes and those means so that he could oversee your creation. And I don't know your backstory, but there are no accidents in this room. Humanity as a whole doesn't exist because evolution just worked through to a certain point. And likewise, you as a person are not the result of just random circumstances and happen, uh, you know, happenings. You were created on purpose for a purpose. Each and every one. There's no one here that can say, well, they have a purpose. I can see why God invented them and created them. I just kind of, I think I got lost in the shuffle. You're here on purpose and for a purpose. And of course, looking at a section like this, we'd be remiss not to observe the value as a side note that these verses put on life within the womb. What is present within the womb is not simply a mass of cells. It is a life. It's a person being knit together by a loving and purposeful God. And we could certainly camp out on that idea lots here this morning, but I just want to make it a, a, a mention in passing. I feel like I would be doing a disservice not to at least acknowledge this. There are no accidents in God's kingdom, nothing that God is not working to redeem and transform and bring to his glory. And so in this in mind, David says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. This whole idea that we're made on purpose, for purpose, should result in praise. There's no way to think about this idea that we don't just say, God, you are amazing. If we even stop for a moment to consider our physical bodies, let alone our souls, the eternal part of us, you and I should be in wonder. Let me just ask, are there any watch enthusiasts here in the, in the room? Anybody who's a watch enthusiast? Yeah, there's a handful. 
A watch is an incredibly amazing thing. I mean, really any watch, but I'm thinking specifically of a classic mechanical wristwatch. If you've ever opened one of these things up to see the internal structure, you know what I'm talking about, the complexity, the scale, just how tiny these things are all working together in conjunction, the complexity needed to capture energy in that spring and then release it at a measured pace to keep hands moving around the dial in order to tell time at a predictable, reliable way. It's just incredible engineering. If you were to flip open a watch, whether it's a mechanical wristwatch or even a cheap throwaway digital watch, it would blow our minds to see what's in there. But now consider the wrist that that watch rides on. If you think the watch is complex, it is a crude instrument compared to the one wearing that watch. The works of God are truly marvelous. There is no way that you can dig into our anatomy and physiology without blowing your mind about God's incredible design. We are truly marvelously made. And David says, this my soul knows very well. I love the reversal here, right? Because this whole psalm, David has been talking about God who knows him. And now he says, God, I know this very well. Here he talks about how he knows God's work in his life. The works of God are well known to him. He's no stranger to God, his ways and his works. He's well acquainted with God in the world. And again, this is the challenge, isn't it? Does a knowledge of God sink into my soul, where I would say my soul knows them very well, or does it remain this high-level intellectual exercise. David has seen the work of God in his life, and the reality of God's active work in the world has settled into his soul. My soul knows these things very well. And boy, I long for this knowledge, and I hope you do too, where none of us are comfortable just having an intellectual understanding of God that it doesn't touch us in the soul. As a prayer for our church that I have, I want us to be a church that has this deep, living, thriving relationship with God, not just simply an intellectual understanding about Him. I pray that we would never be a church that settles for a surface-level Christianity, content to know facts about God, but without actually knowing Him well. I pray that our church be able to say that our souls, individually and collectively, know very well the works of God. Well, David continues, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Commentator John Gill notes that as David looks back on his creation within the womb, he says his physical frame as well as his days, were both equally unformed, and yet God knew them both. When he was still unformed in his mother's womb, and when he hadn't lived out a full day, God knew everything about David. God saw David the person, and each day the life that he would live with perfect clarity. There was purpose in these things. And then David says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. He circles back to the thought that's been running throughout this psalm, that omniscient, omnipresent God knows him and thinks of him. Not just a little. His thoughts towards us are greater than the sand of the sea. And as we try to understand how God relates to us, we often fall back by default onto how we relate to others. We use ourselves as kind of a pattern and a template for how God is. And this is a real problem, isn't it? You can see inherently this is going to be a problem because we're using the finite and the limited as a template and a pattern to try and overlay and understand what is infinite and unlimited. And case in point here for David is our ability to handle information. Because our minds can only work with a certain amount of clarity up to a certain point, and at that point, things start getting pushed into the background. 
Have you ever said something like, I just can't think about that right now. I've got to deal with this. You can't have every thought front of mind. I just have to, I just can't think about that right now. I've got to push that off to the side so I can concentrate on this. We have finite minds not able to handle an infinite amount of information. And the problem is we project this then onto God. We feel that he's limited in the same way that we're limited. We would just think, well, maybe he's just bigger. I mean, he can handle more information, but he'll still reach a point, too, where he can't keep everything front of mind. With all that he's doing and managing the universe, we probably don't sneak to the front of his conscious thought. Our little lives don't get much attention. And the problem is we're using our finite lives to try and understand an infinite God. And that's just simply not how God is. Being infinite, God can think about all things, all the time, and not miss a single detail. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that not even a sparrow falls, that God doesn't see and know it. A a while back, it's been a number of months ago, I I stepped outside in our back patio and I saw a, a dead bird, just a small little bird, just a little songbird, and I don't know what happened. It was in the morning, so I don't know if it, you know, what happened. And immediately this idea came to mind that I didn't know what happened. No one witnessed this thing until I came out and saw it. And yet the infinite creator of everything saw when this little bird took its last breath and knew without a shadow of a doubt what had happened. God can handle every detail, keeping it all front of mind. His thoughts toward us are more than all the sand on this little blue planet we call Earth. You are not lost in the crowd. Your paperwork hasn't been lost under some heavenly stack where other more pressing matters have piled on top. He sees you and he knows you. He created you and he is always thinking of you. And his thoughts towards you are always good. Throughout this psalm, David has been in awe of God's good care of his life. It's more than just the fact that God is thinking of him. It's that God is so good in his care of him. It's probably a verse that's on every Christian's fridge in all of America, but just because it's well known doesn't mean it doesn't speak anything less than truth. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. We see the nature of God's thoughts toward his people. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, obviously, these words were spoken to Israel at a specific time and a specific season, and yet they still describe the heart of God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fact that God loves you and that his heart is good toward you is undeniable and inescapable. And we could pick any number of verses throughout the scriptures to bring this home, but a few come to mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How does God think towards you? He loves you. He loves you so much that he didn't desire to condemn you, but to find a way for you to be saved and reconciled to him. God loves you. Romans 8, 38 and 9. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the nature of God's thoughts towards you. He created you on purpose, for a purpose, and that he loves you. We have an enemy, and we have our own fallen minds who love to tell us that God doesn't see us, and that if he he does, he doesn't really love us. If he thinks of us, it's not a good thing, but neither could be further from the truth. He is always thinking of you. He who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep, His eye is always open towards you. His heart is always for you. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from his love. You wake up each morning. He is there with you and you are there with him. Each morning you and I wake up to mercies that are new. A salvation that is still perfect and complete. 
And these are truths that are easy for us to talk about, but to really let them sink in and shape our living is the thing that we're trying to do here. Not just understand an idea, but to really let it sink in into our hearts. To know something, to know a love that passes understanding. And then in verse 19, through the end of the chapter, we come to our response to him. Here's what God's love has been towards us, who God has been towards us. And then David begins with his response to all this. And it's kind of a pivot. It's not what we'd expect, right? He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. This seems out of place, doesn't it? It seems like, man, just this sweet, sweet psalm, incredible ideas, and then boom, I hate you. No, it's, it's a hard pivot. But it seems out of place. But remember, David was a passionate man, wasn't he? David was not just kind of an even keel. David's highs were high and his lows were low. David was a man who experienced emotions strongly. And David was a warrior. He wasn't just a politician. This man lived by the sword. He had seen men die in front of him at his hand. This, this was a hard dude in ways that we don't experience today. He was a warrior living among warriors. And as he considers God's great love for him, his zeal and his passion is stirred up. He not only wants to love God, but he wants to hate the things that God hates. He wants to oppose the one who opposes the one he loves. And as David considers God's knowledge of him, his presence with him, his purpose for him, he can't help but to want to be aligned with God. And that includes hating the things that God hates. This is kind of a strange concept. It's easy for us to think that following God helps shape the things that we're for. It helps shape the things that we're positive towards, the things that we love. We follow God loving the things that he loves, valuing and prioritizing the things that are of value to him. But following God should also mean that we hate the things that he hates and grieve over the things that grieve him. Well, I found this so well put. Uh, Spurgeon, in his commentary here on Psalm 139, quotes an old Anglican bishop named George Horn. And George uh, Horn's thoughts on this are so well put. He says, A faithful servant hath the same interests, the same friends, the same enemies with his master, whose cause and honor he is upon all occasions in duty bound to support and man maintain. A good man hates, as God himself doth. He hates not the persons of men, but their sins. Not what God made them, but what they made themselves. We are neither to hate the men on account of the vices they practice, nor love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. He who observeth, observeth invariably this distinction fulfills the perfect law of clarity, and hath the love of God and his neighbor abiding in him. My spell checker hates that quote because of the English versions of the words, but oh, I love that quote. So capturing this idea of what it means to be a follower of God, loving certain things, but also hating the things that God hates. What a balanced and healthy take on an idea that can easily get twisted in our minds. As children and servants of God, we want to have the same interest of our Heavenly Father, of our Master. We want to have the same friends and the same enemies. We want to value God's honor and name in this world. And when God's goodness begins to shape us in the way we look at the world, we also hate the things that God hates. Horn walks this very delicate line so well. He says, we hate not the persons of men, but their sin, not what God made them, but what they have made themselves. As holiness grows in our hearts, as we grow closer to the Lord, so should our hatred for sin. Sin in the world around us should grieve us. We should hate the sin that we see around us. But just as importantly, and here's where David lands this psalm, we should also hate and grieve over the sin within us. In verse 23, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus warned us about the hypocrisy of judging the sin in others without considering ourselves. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove excuse me, the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's well and good to talk about hating sin in the world around us, but we had better be more passionate about the sin within us. If there is any zeal towards sin in the world, there better be zeal towards sin in our hearts. We need God to search us. We need the one who knows our thoughts to correct us, to show us our thoughts, the thoughts that bless him, and to correct those thoughts that he hates within us. We need him to try the words on our tongues to help us see which pleases him and which words grieve him. And when these things are being addressed, we can be more easily led down the way everlasting. John talked about this in 1 John. He says, this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As you and I walk in the light, our hearts are more and more free from sin and we're able to walk in closer fellowship with God. We get to walk in the way that David describes here as the way everlasting. We get to walk in fellowship with the one who knows us so well. And so with this prayer, David closes the loop, right? God, you searched me and you know me. That was the beginning of the psalm. And here again, he closes coming back to that. God, search me out. It was a word of wonder at the beginning of the psalm. And now it's a prayer of confession, repentance, and need. God, search me out. Shape away, transform those things that grieve you. This whole psalm has been about the God who knows him who is with him and has a purpose for him. And what better response is there to these things than that we would pursue him in return, saying, Lord, those things that separate from me from you, do away with those things so that I can pursue you like you pursue me. David is putting into practice the principle in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. We love him, that is God, because he first loved us. It's a response of his love for us that we love him. And so given how God has demonstrated his love in such powerful ways, David wants that to shape his life. He wants to be zealous for God's name in this world, zealous for God's work in his life. And I pray that as you and I have considered this psalm and thought through it and read through it, that the same response is there for us. Absolute wonder at who God is and his work in our lives, and then letting that transform how we live day to day. We're going to close in prayer, and, and Lindsay and Taylor, if you guys wanted to come back up and lead us in a last song. But just as we close, I just want to give invitation. If there is anybody here this morning, you're hearing about a God who knows you, is present with you, and created you on purpose. And if you don't have a relationship with that God today, I'd say today is the day he's inviting you into close fellowship. If there's anyone here who says, I need to respond to that invitation. I had to respond to the one who's reaching out to me, the one who's with me. I need to be with him. Is there anybody here who hasn't responded to that? And you would say, hey, that's me. I just want to raise my hand in response to that. It may be here. Everyone is in the room, but I'd be so disappointed if I had an opportunity, if this was the moment where you saw God was reaching out to you and I didn't give you opportunity. Is there anybody here who needs to respond to that in a fresh way? today. There's a God who's pursuing us. There's a God who's with us even today. And we rejoice in that. And so whether you 
each one of us in the room this morning are in that place, we own that, or whether we just didn't have quite the strength to raise up our hand, let's each find how we respond to that. How we understand there's a God who's near me and I can just simply respond to him. Let's close in prayer this morning together. Father, we are so grateful that you're not a God who's distant, like some divine watchmaker who created all things, wound things up to provide the energy needed for life, and then just stood back and let it run its course. Or that's not at all who you are. You are God present with us. And we receive that truth this morning. We want our minds to be filled with these things, our intellects built up and, and expanded and stretched, but not just stopping there, settling into our hearts and minds, sinking into our day-to-day experience, the fellowship that we have with you, or will you take these wonderful truths and help settle them into our hearts? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand in close together in a last song of worship and just responding to what God has shown us about himself today. Lord, thank you for the response of worship when things are too wonderful for our minds to fully grasp and to feel like we've responded with a a clarity that is in measure with the truths that we've been considering just to fall back on worship. Lord, let our whole lives be a response to you your knowledge of us, your presence with us, your purpose for us. Let our whole lives be lived out in response to these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I could have just hung out in that moment for a long time, just responding in worship, just saying, Lord, these truths are so good. You are so good. And so whether you, however you take that into the week, I pray that these thoughts don't just, hey, that's great stuff for a Sunday note, so just tuck those in and they're quickly forgotten. We move on. I pray that they're ruminating in our minds and just kind of echoing in our brains as we go through our week. Pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. If you need prayer this week, there's people available to pray with you and just to come alongside you, whether you're going through something heavy or where you're rejoicing over some great work that God has done. Um, just to spend time in prayer. But again, Lord, bless you this week and look forward to spending time with you next week. In Jesus' name.